I think everybody is born with a certain inis, you know, on a spectrum, like a spectrum between masculine and feminine. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Resound. I'm definitely not your uh, sports fan, your macho guy. Resound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and personal revolutions we find all over the world. We listen to whatever we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week. Trans equality now! He says, you can't use this bathroom. I said, this is the bathroom I'm supposed to use. What you need to have is bathrooms for all people here. Gravitating toward the binary comes naturally to a lot of us. And it is oh so easy. Black, white, good, bad, Democrat, Republican, male, female. We see someone and right away, in a nanosecond, we think we have a read on who they are. And yet, so often, we are way, way off the mark. Which is why, today on ReSound, we have brought together stories that grab hold of your expectations and take them for a twisty, turny ride, smashing the binary. Stay with us. At Third Coast, we listen to a lot of stories that challenge assumptions about gender. But what captured our attention in this next piece was that it explored a little talked about area in the lives of straight men, their feminine side. In this episode from the podcast, The Heart, host Caitlin Prest surveys the straight cis male she's been with about embracing or rejecting, for lack of a better word, their twirl. So I was talking to my dad the other day for an upcoming heart project about the gray areas of consent. And we were getting into a conversation about power and masculinity and femininity and what my dad, as a pretty stereotypical heterosexual man, grew up thinking that he was supposed to be. For a while, I mean, there was even a pile, like, as recently as four years ago, where I felt, oh, I should be more manly. I should be like the jocks. I should be, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, yeah, more of a, a sports fan, whatever, you know. And um, then I realized, okay, you know what? I'm not. I'm not. And I don't have to be embarrassed about that. I'm definitely not your macho uh, gun-toting, uh, hunting, uh, sports fan guy. And then I realized that that is okay. That is completely fine. And you'll get, you know, I think everybody is born with a certain, in a, you know, on a spectrum, like a spectrum between masculine and feminine. I felt proud that my dad has an innate sense of a spectrum of gender. No one ever taught him that. He grew up in a world where there were two genders and anything outside of that was an abnormality. But so on the spectrum, where are you? I don't know. I'd say I'm three quarters of the way to being Mr. Man, but uh, or even only halfway, you know, and I'm totally fine with that, you know, but I'm certainly not gay. I like women. (laughs) So he's still totally fucked it up. Gay is not the opposite of masculine. There are tons of extremely masculine gay men, men who are maybe even more masculine than my dad. But even though I know that, doesn't mean that I don't sometimes make assumptions about people based on the way that they do their gender. Girls with a certain kind of haircut, for example, or a dapper dudely getup. I'm often really quick to assume that such a girl is gay. I know that it's kind of messed up to assume who anyone wants to fuck or fall in love with based on whether they look masculine or feminine. But gender does have something to do with what I find myself attracted to. When I date girls, I date girls who present very feminine. Girls with long hair. Girls who maybe shave their legs. 
girls who wear lacy, girly bras and underwear and stuff. Girls who don't necessarily make the first move, who like to be pursued. What I've noticed over time is that the dudes I date are also always feminine. I like boys who wear makeup, boys who don't take up a lot of space, boys who are super sensitive and cry more than I do while watching Titanic, boys who bat their eyelashes and give you a come-hither look. More than I date women, I date these kinds of men. Cis men, who date women but constantly get read as gay, some of whom hide their femininity, and only behind closed doors do I see it emerge when I'm fucking them or when a song they like comes on and they can't stop themselves from twirling. I love the idea of being able to, like on a hot summer's day, wear a skirt. There's no, there's no male equivalent except for some really maybe dorky zip-on pant shorts, which are just the worst. If I want to wear a big chunky necklace one day, I will wear it. If I want to paint a nail, I'll do it. If it were socially acceptable for me to wear eyeliner, I would absolutely wear eyeliner. I just like the way it looks. I, I would describe myself as like a, an impassioned mother hen who identifies very strongly as male. I do twirl. <laughs> my movements, like use of my wrists, the way I sit on a chair. How I use my body. The way that I use my hips, the way that I use my hands. It's like I'll like, you know, throw my hand a little bit like this completely naturally, like I'm not even thinking about it. Even actually as I'm saying this right now, I'm gesticulating like and like flopping my wrist around quite, quite, uh, quite liberally. Yeah, but a part of me goes, careful, people are like judgmental of that. These are some of my many friends and ex-lovers. All of the straight or mostly straight dudes in my life who have deep femininity within them. I identify very strongly as a man. I'm built like a linebacker. <laughs> I guess the way other people would consider me feminine is that I'm more outwardly emotional. I'm very connected to people's feelings and I kind of like take on people's feelings very easily, sometimes to my own detriment. I got accused of being gay a lot. That was like one way that like pressure was exerted a lot was like questioning my sexuality even though I never really questioned it very much. It was always pretty clear to me that I was interested in women. I really just began to like stop pushing down like my feminine qualities and began to like slowly start to embrace them. Like I totally like look at masculinity and femininity like a mixer and you're turning up these certain knobs throughout the day, moving through spaces like in the black body, I know sometimes I will turn off some of my masculine attributes to appear softer. When I'm around folks that are pushing towards the queer spectrum, my femininity kind of kind of comes out a little bit more in like a safer space, I guess you could say. The whole idea for this project came when I was hanging out with Todd this summer. Hey, Caitlin. How you doing? Pretty good. Yay. <laughs> Todd presents super masculine. He has a beard. He wears doodly clothing like jeans and T-shirts or button-down shirts or, I don't know, stuff that looks doodly. But if you spend a little bit of time with him, you might hug him and notice how soft he is or how soft he keeps his hands. I've always known Todd to be looking for love with a capital L, he stayed with his high school sweetheart until he was almost 30, at which point he had to face the strange universe of dating for the first time. We had a sweet roommate romance, and then I moved away to New York City. Six years later, here I am, on a visit to Toronto, catching up over a bottle of cheap wine and some spaghetti. And I'm wondering if he's found what he's looking for yet. He tells me a story about a girl. We'll call her Liz. Oh, I was extremely smitten. There was, like, nothing about her that seemed unpleasant to me. To Todd, Liz was perfect. There's something about, like, little details of, like, the way someone's skin sweats or the way that their foot would fit in your hand. There's something about those, like, holy proportions. And even more perfect, she seemed to want exactly what he wanted, to build a life with somebody a magical life full of music and art and maybe babies. 
when you start talking about wanting to have children with someone you've just started dating, you get a sense that this person must be really into you. Eventually, Todd and Liz hit the point that everybody hits, the point where the imperfections start to emerge. She gave me this whole rant about how fast I speak. and Liz noticed, like a lot of Todd's partners noticed, that he talks a lot, for example. That was something that Todd felt like he could work on, but there was something else. She started critiquing me on my mannerisms and telling me, oh, I hate when you twirl or I hate when you act like that. Like, I found out there was a wave pool. Like, uh, I like wave pools. They're pretty fun. So I was like, oh, my God, there's a wave pool in Barrie. And we're, like, driving to Barrie, like, next week. Let's go to a wave pool. Yes. I was just so, like, <laughs> And I, like, twirled. She just, like, sunken, very sunken face. She's like, I hate it when you do that. And I was like, me, I just fell silent and felt really shitty. And it's like, that's, it's weird. It's like, it's not the meanest thing I've ever said, but then, but being told that like, I don't like the way you do something to the core of you, like the way you, you're, you, you act in a, when you're happy. That was like really terrifying. It's something that I've been kind of like led to believe my whole life that I shouldn't be twirling or happy or a little bit feminine in my actions. And for the first time I had been told this by a partner, I didn't realize how devastating it would be. There were a lot of factors between Liz and Todd that led them to parting ways. But this part of the story totally broke my heart especially because Todd's femininity was something that I thought was really sexy about him. I remember the way that he moved while we were having sex reminded me of things that I really liked about having sex with women. I started thinking about all the other guys I know who are straight, but who don't fit squarely into the expectations of hetero maleness. I think a lot of men feel pressure to perform masculinity as a courtship ritual and for the sake of attracting women. For a lot of girls who, for instance, would like the way I look, but as soon as they sort of observe me for a little while, they're just like, no, like, absolutely not. <laughs> like, this guy isn't like a brawny dude. I was cozying up to her and I placed my head on her bosom and was kind of like looking up at her and being real cute and she was like why are you cuddling me like you're my child and I think that's something that happens femininity gets mistaken for childishness there's kind of like an infantilism that happens to feminine men most of the people I've had really serious relationships with like have also dated other women everyone I've ever dated is bisexual um, <laughs> literally everyone. I mean, I do think that there's something about the fact that, like, women who like women like you. I can't help who's attracted to me. <laughs> this is the person that I'm dating right now. We call him Beautiful Boyfriend. I wanted to talk to him about this and see what he thought. I have to admit that there was a slight awkwardness when I reached out for interviews for this piece calling up friends and exes and being like, hey, we both know you're kind of effeminate. Do you want to talk about it? And I wanted to talk to Beautiful Boyfriend, even though he's more masculine presenting and way more straight than anyone I've ever dated. Because despite those things, I still see a lot of the traits that I'm typically att attracted to in him. Things on the inside, like being extremely sensitive and nurturing, and things that register through his physicality the way he uses his body in certain moments. In our conversation, he gave me a lot of pushback. First of all, I'm resisting you putting me in this category because that's not who I, that's not how I see myself. Like I see myself as a man and I wanna be like read as a man in the world. And like, I want to be seen as masculine. Um, like, and I'm comfortable with the idea of being an emotionally sensitive man and a man who's in touch with his femininity at the same time, you know, if you were to tell me that, like, 
a mannerism that I have or like a behavior that I have uh, is reading as effeminate, I would probably feel, you know, if I'm being honest, I would probably feel some degree of shame about that. Like honestly, deep down, I think that that probably connects to a certain degree of like latent homophobia. I mean, I think that in our culture, the idea of masculinity comes with a certain degree of homophobia. Like that's what it takes to be a man. And I think that's really fucked up. Right. And then, but I'm saying that like your aversion to being effeminate yeah. is masked misogyny because the negative stereotype that we have of gayness is actually just a stereotype of a feminine man. Hmm. Hmm. Have you um, ever heard, like, what is the term, have you, have you ever heard the term pansy? Like, have you ever, like... Yeah, I'm familiar with it, but no, I've never been called a pansy. <laughs> um, what does it mean? Fruit. <laughs> I think a pansy actually may not mean, like, a gay person, but rather just an effeminate guy. I think that's what a pansy is. I mean, pansy, I guess, is, you know, a way of trying to describe someone as weak. Um, and that almost almost means feminizing them. I don't know that I've ever in my life been seriously called a pansy. Um, the word was faggot. Well, sometimes I feel like on the other side of the spectrum, I'm weak, you know, because I'm not aggressive like that and I'm not taking what I want, you know. There are other times when I feel like I'm too, almost too understanding. And do you think, like, why do you think that the, like, the idea of power is associated with taking what you want? I mean, like, do do you see anything wrong with that? Yes, I do. Because the real power is strength uh, to defend the weak, strength to, you know, not be going after what you want, but being after the interests of a greater good. That's real strength. Like, I feel like you should be able to be masculine and vulnerable at the same time, like in, in the sort of hypothetical sense. When I'm sensitive, if I'm honest, like I don't think about it as like femininity. Like I'm just thinking of all the things that are gendered in terms of just the way that we talk about power dynamics. I want all of the complexities to exist within like manliness and manhood. Beautiful boyfriend has a point. Why do the qualities that I see in him have to be considered feminine? Can't a feminine man just be a man? I think, like, rather than thinking of gender as, like, a spectrum necessarily even, like, I think about it as, like, like a scatter plot of, like, different personality characteristics, you know? Like, and there are a whole bunch of things that we have a shorthand for, and in our culture we call them masculine or feminine. And, like, I'm comfortable with the idea that I have a mixture of those points. I do recognize the absurdity here. You could be listening to this and thinking, wow, bunch of straight cis men are mansplaining gender. But I also do really believe that it's important to include straight cis men in the reimagining of gender. So back to the most confusing question ever, which is, what the fuck do we mean when we say femininity? Some people describe femininity as being empathetic or sensitive, emotional. Are these things essentially feminine, or are they just things that one develops over centuries of being on the crappy side of a power dynamic? How do these things intersect with other power binaries like race or class? I think that what I'd like to strive for is to embrace the power in the things that we associate with femininity. Things like being receptive instead of active, or being emotional instead of rational, being vulnerable. But also things that are fucking trivial, like wearing lipstick or high heels. I want to embrace those things and then let people be free to channel them as the sacred power of womanhood if they feel like it, or to channel them as the new power of manhood if they feel like it, or to leave behind all the gendering and just be a person who is many different things. 
Basically, to let people be free to do whatever the fuck they want, as long as they're not mean. These are the thoughts that I leave you with. Twirl was produced by Caitlin Prest for The Heart. If you liked this episode from The Heart, you might want to check out their story, Maria, which won the 2016 Third Coast Gold Award. You can listen on thirdcoastfestival.org. Non-traditional families are nothing new. I mean, really, gender, schmender. But in this story, gender is just a small piece of a complicated situation our protagonists find themselves in. Theirs is a tale that turns assumptions upside down. It's a passionate love story, a tense legal drama, and a complicated family affair that starts when boy meets boy. Here's Hillary Frank. Tristan was 27. He'd been single for four years. He was living in Los Angeles, heading to brunch at his friend's house, and he spotted this guy crossing the street. He had, like, kind of pink hair and a nose ring, and he had, like, these tall boots and, like, tight pants and a little black bandana. And, I don't know, he just took my breath away. This pink-haired guy. It was pretty clear he was going to the same party as Tristan. They started talking. His name was John. I was so, you know, I could, I could like barely talk to him. He was so beautiful. I really tried. I was like giving him all I had, you know, flirting wise. Um, and I was getting nothing back, like nothing. And I was like, what, what am I doing wrong, you know? And at one point I went up to go went to the bathroom to wash my hands. And I looked in the mirror and I realized that I actually had a piece of spinach covering up one of my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> like the biggest cliche. <laughs> Oh, my God. He thought I had, like, a dead tooth. You know what I mean? And, you know, when someone's when something's going on with someone's teeth, it's really hard to, like, listen or pay attention to them. <laughs> so in retrospect, he said, oh, yeah, I thought you were super cute, but I was, like, too bad about his tooth. <laughs> Tristan was not thrown by John's disinterest. He was like, I don't care. This is my person. He friended John on Facebook. He started going to events where he knew John would be. He joined a queer meetup group that John led. And he actually had a boyfriend at the time, too, which I didn't know until later. And so I just said, I'm going to wait. So I waited. And I knew that the day that he got out of that relationship, I was moving in for the kill. <laughs> now, if you've ever been the Tristan in this scenario, obsessing over someone, following them around, pining, waiting for them to get out of a relationship, and this person is not very responsive to your flirting in the first place, you know, the chances of this working out are slim. In your typical love story, this ends in heartbreak for Tristan. But this is not your typical love story. His Facebook status, like his relationship status on Facebook changed. You know, it was like, John Chaplow is single. I literally picked up the phone and I said, what are you doing tonight? Do you want to have dinner with me? And he said, yeah. So something worth mentioning here before we dig in, and this is something Tristan wrote to me in his email about his story. Tristan is transgender. He was born a girl and lived as a girl until he was about 20. That's when he changed his name and asked his friends to refer to him as he. At that point, Tristan also wanted to transition physically, you know, to get hormonal treatments. But he was working as a Broadway singer, so he worried about it. Because um, your voice changes a lot. You know, it's like it's like double puberty, you know? Tristan decided to enroll in a performing arts conservatory. So he'd have teachers who could help him learn how to work with his new voice. Yeah, so I went into this conservatory looking like a lesbian, quite frankly, because I had short hair, you know, um, and I was really boyish. And then I literally came out with a goatee and looking totally like any other 20-year-old guy. <laughs> Tristan's only ever gotten hormones, not surgery. So his body is female. These are his words. But to the outside world, he presents as male. We'll come back to this. For now, you just need to know that John, the pink-haired guy, was not at all aware that Tristan was into him, despite Tristan having been a little stalkery. But after that first dinner, when John's Facebook status had switched to single, 
John started to like Tristan back, too. So you started dating, and, like, what what did you guys do for fun? Oh, man. You know, like, 25-year-old gay boy things. We, like, we went to shows, you know. You know, we would do a weekend in Vegas and stay out all night dancing and driving to see our friends in San Diego, going to the beach, making out in the sand. It was magical. Tristan and John lived like this for a year. Labor Day weekend, 2011, they were partying up a storm in Vegas. The next Friday, John's phone rang. We got a phone call um, saying that his sister's kids were going to be taken away from her, that um, the situation in their house had gotten so bad for the kids that social services was going to step in and the kids were going to end up in foster care. Um, And we were led to believe that you know, his sister would not be able to successfully jump through the hoops that she would need to, to get the kids back. And how old were the kids at the time? One in three. So that was Friday. The social worker told John that this plan to remove the kids from the home, this was going to go down on Monday. Unless, of course, he took them. And it was, I was literally like at work and my partner called me and it's, it was so cheesy. He was like, are you sitting down? You know, like in a movie or something. (laughs) Um, And I was like, well, sure, yeah, what's going on? And he said, we have to drive to Bakersfield and we have to convince to let us take our kids. And you said? Well, I said, yes, of course, of course. Immediately you said that? Immediately, of course. Um, You know, I'm like wildly, I'm like a wildly romantic person. I'm like, this is going to be amazing. We're going to save these two kids and... And on the drive up there, he said, I want you to know that, you know, we've been together for a year and this, like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know if we're taking them for the weekend. I don't know if we're taking them for a month. I don't know if they're going to go back to this really dangerous home. I don't know if we're keeping them forever, but I want you to know that this is not something we do halfway. This is not something that we do or doing for fun. We've never talked about forever. You know, we're not really forever kind of people. When Tristan says they weren't forever kind of people, he means that as queer people, they saw themselves as skeptics of traditional romantic narratives. But this is more important than getting married. We pick up these kids. If they stay with us, you are agreeing to be with me for the next 18 years. We're not going to take them from an unstable situation and put them in another unstable situation. This was, this was in the car ride on the way to get the kids. Yep. <laughs> another thing that made Tristan say yes to the kids He had a foster sister in his family, and she'd had a horrendous time in the system. He did not want to watch that happen to John's niece and nephew. So Tristan said yes, yes, yes to all of it. The kids, the forever, he was game, even more confidently than John was. But it was scary. They didn't get paid much, and they were just in their mid-20s. And, you know, in gay years, that's like 15. You know, that's (laughs) you're not in your mid-20s when you're gay and 27. Um, Explain that. Oh, uh, you know, there's like, there's just a bit of a, usually there's a bit of a developmental sort of delay. Um, A lot of the things that like sort of straight people go through when they're 10, 12, 15, as a gay person, you don't really go through until you're in your 20s. You don't get to date a bunch. You don't get to make a bunch of stupid mistakes and stay out late. You know, so there's always that delay um, romantically uh, in terms of your relationships. Um, and so, I mean, I've never met another LGBT person who's a parent at age 25. Tristan and John drive two hours to John's sisters. They go in. They convince the sister to let them take the kids. Just for a few days, they tell her, so she can get back on her feet. Tristan says she seemed relieved. And then over time, as their home life really, really deteriorated, and as there was, you know, more police incidents at that, that, that home, we eventually had to go behind their back and file for emergency guardianship through the court systems. It was incredibly difficult. You know, there was an investigation. We had to, you know, prove to all these investigators that we were a good and loving home, which felt very scary for us as a gay couple. What what state are you in? Uh, That we were in California. And we were in L.A. And we had talked to a, a lawyer in Bakersfield, which is where they were. And the lawyer in Bakersfield said, there is absolutely no way that a judge in this county will ever agree to have you 
parent these kids. They would rather they live in a meth home with straight parents who are abusive than live in a happy, healthy, stable, supportive gay house. And that that was part of our calculus in deciding to get the parents' permission to have the kids stay with us in L.A. until we could file in Los Angeles for emergency guardianship. Mm, I see. Yeah. And, I mean, we lived with that terror every single day. I mean, there were three months when we didn't have any legal rights at all. And at any point, their biological parents could have showed up and said, never mind, give them back, and we would have lost them. It was like building the plane while flying it. It's like we're trying to parent these deeply traumatized kids while also defending our right to parent them at the same time. It was harrowing. It was harrowing. Riley was three at the time, um, and he was completely nonverbal. So he didn't even have the ability to say no to anything. He was nonverbal when he came to you, or did he become nonverbal? No, he was nonverbal when he came to us. So he didn't know colors. He didn't know songs. He didn't know animal sounds. And if I said to him, Riley, honey, have you seen Toy Story? Do you want to watch Toy Story? He would just say yes. If, I, if you said, Riley, do you want broccoli? He would just nod his head yes. So he had no ability to say no to anything. Hmm. And eventually I had to like create other ways that felt safe for him to say no, he didn't want to do something. So we ended up creating like a thumbs up, thumbs middle, thumbs down code with him because he didn't feel safe enough to say the word no or to in any way express that he didn't like something because the penalty had been so harsh for him in the past if he had tried to say, no, I don't want to do that, or no, I don't want to go there. Um, and so did you did you have to get Riley into school? Well, oh, man. <laughs> um, if you don't have any legal rights to a kid, um, you can't put them in school. You can't take them to a doctor. You can't put them in preschool. You can't do almost anything with them. Um, and this is actually part of where, like, being a gay parent makes it even harder. Because if we were a straight couple, then we could just show up at a school and enroll them. And no one would ever say, well, prove that this kid is your kid. But because we're gay parents, you automatically know, like, oh, these are not your biological kids. Show us the paperwork. Um, So I had to take a leave of absence from work and stay home with them. Um, And then we found a very good friend of ours who'd actually been a nanny uh, who was between jobs. And so we were able to pay her to be their nanny while we went through this legal process. Tristan says the court battle was incredibly difficult. He says he had some sympathy for John's sister. She was 15 when she had her first child, 18 when she had her second. Her boyfriend, who was also Haley, the baby's biological father, beat both her and the kids. He yelled at them, called them names. At the same time, John's sister had the opportunity to leave her abusive home, and she never did. And Tristan says she was neglectful, didn't change the baby's diaper, didn't show up for some of the court dates. The sister's boyfriend wound up going to prison for burglary and car theft, and after a few months in court, Tristan and John won emergency guardianship of the kids, which meant they could take the kids to the doctor. They could enroll Haley in daycare and Riley in preschool. He's seven now? Yeah, he's seven. Does he communicate like an average seven-year-old now? Oh, yes. (laughs) Some would say too much. (laughs) (laughs) How did did he transition to that? Yeah, I mean, it it was a long slog. It was a long slog. Um, so it was about a year of, he would sit with his cars, we got him cars, and he would spend hours lining the cars up into these perfect rows on the floor. Just car after car after car after car. And then if they got knocked over, you know, you have to remember, we also had, you know, Haley, who was one, who was like learning how to walk, you know, and like pound around and mess things up. So, and then he would just have a he would have like hours long meltdowns where he would just sit and cry. And so we would just hold him, you know, we would just attend to him and we would just hold him and we would be, 
you know, I have a friend who's a parenting coach and and she would say, you just have to be present with him through his disappointment or through his pain. Um, and so that's what I did. That's what we, we how did you present it to them? Did you, did you, or I guess Haley was too young, but how did you present it to Riley? Did you say like, you're with us now? Well, no, you know, we didn't want to promise. We didn't know if it was for today. We didn't know if it was for the week. We didn't know if it was forever. I mean, and that was incredibly difficult too, because you so much want to say, buddy, you're safe now. And quite frankly, I didn't know if he was. I couldn't promise him that we were his parents. I could only promise that he's safe now. He's safe for today. But I would just, you know, I would just hold him and say, I know, sweetheart, and, and you're safe right now. And as he started to be able to talk, you know, as we went from squirming away after one page of a book, and it was like, okay, so Dr. Seuss isn't going to work. That's too advanced for him. We would go back to the, like, baby books with the, like, uh, fur on them, you know, where it's like, pet the sheep, furry sheep. Can you say furry sheep? So, like, way back to baby books, like you would with a one-year-old. And so they did it together, you know, him and his sister, where it was like, let's pretend to be a sheep and... I could just, like imagine it must have been so um like exciting when when he was finally coming around oh, and man. starting to exhibit some more normal behaviors. It, oh my god. Actually, so I remember that first time that we saw that light. And my foster sister actually also lives in LA. She has a son who's very close in age to Riley and he had a birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese. And it was a couple months after the kids came to live with us. And we went to stupid Chuck E. Cheese, which, you know, as a parent, I'm like, kill me. I do not want to go to Chuck E. Cheese. But that's where the party was. And, like, Chuck E. Cheese came out and did the little show and was giving kids high fives. And Riley was ecstatic about Chuck E. Cheese And so he, like, was sitting there, and he, like, put his hand up and was, like, waving his hand around, like, pick me, pick me. And that was the first time we'd seen him, like, assert his identity. It was the first time we'd seen him be like, I deserve to be chosen. I deserve to be chosen. I want to be chosen. Pick me. Tristan likes to call himself and John accidental gay parents. Not something that happens much. You know, usually when a gay couple decides to start a family, they have to answer a huge question. How? Figuring out the how takes time and research and money and often medical procedures. For Tristan and John, the how was answered after a single phone call. But it is not lost on Tristan that their becoming parents was at the expense of John's sister becoming not a parent. You know, we wanted to become parents by choice, you know, we wanted to pre- prepare and, and you know, like get ourselves ready, get our lives ready and be a parent to someone where everyone felt great about it, not where one person had to experience that trauma of losing her kids. We don't take that lightly. John's sister vacillated. Sometimes she said the kids should live with him and Tristan. Sometimes she wanted them back. It was hard on everybody. In the end, John's sister agreed to let him and Tristan begin the adoption process. In the meantime, Tristan and John have gotten married. On their wedding day, Tristan, John, Riley, and Haley all wore white outfits with sparkly silver sneakers. And um, now do the kids call you dad? Yeah. Technically, I'm daddy and John is dada. They called us uncles for a long time. Um... And, and that was really tough. You know, I really had to learn throughout this process that what was important to me matters so little when it comes to parenting, um, that it really should be what's, what's important to them. And for me to not put, like, I wanted to be a dad so bad. I've always wanted to be a dad. And I feel like we fought so hard for these kids to be our kids I mean, all of our savings we lost in the process, you know, all of those hours of sleep, you know, a lot of the intimacy that we were able to experience pre-kids, you know, really took a backseat for a long time. Um, so I kind of felt like, you know, come on, kids, like I've earned this. You know, I've earned the right to be called dad. But 
it wouldn't have been right to force that on them. You know, we really had to let them sort of come to it on their own and have it naturally be an evolution. And so we were un- uncle, uncle daddy. That was the, what they called us for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was really sad for me. You know, I just wanted to be, I just wanted to be dad. Do you remember um, the thing that made you really feel like a dad, like a real dad? Oh, yeah. I was playing with Haley. She must have been, I don't know, it was just a couple months in. And we were playing and I was holding, I picked her up and she threw up all over me. I mean, like disgusting projectile. Oh, my God. And when I picked her up, I smushed her diaper and then her disgusting baby poop was like all over my shirt, all over (laughs) her. And like, I like literally, like, I didn't even have, I didn't even think to be grossed out. I literally was like, well, now there's like vomit and poop all over us. I like stripped us all down, hopped into the shower with her, cleaned her off. And like, as I was cleaning her off, I was like, oh, I'm a, I'm a dad. And so like, I have a very, very, very clear memory of us being in the shower and her like, you know, giggling and me laughing too, you know, cause it's so gross mm-hmm. that it cycles back around from being gross to being funny. I don't know. It was just like this wonderful, disgusting, funny moment. Um, and when I realized that all of those parental instincts had kicked in, And also, right after that, I had a moment of real rage because I remembered, you know, I was a political organizer working on gay issues for a long time. And I remembered all of those people that I'd talked to on their doorsteps who didn't think that gay people should or could be parents. And I had that moment where I just was so, I was so angry because here I am cleaning up pee and poop and puke. You know, Riley got croup and I had to take him to the hospital and I thought he was going to die. And I held his hand in the hospital, you know, and like they would have night terrors and they would just wake up screaming because they'd been abused so badly. I had just, I'd fought tooth and nail. I'd given up almost everything in my life to be able to be a dad to these kids who really, really needed someone to step up and stand up for them, you know? And here there are all of these people out in the world who think that I shouldn't be able to do that and that I can't do it and that we're not a real family. How dare they? And especially me being trans, it's like there are so many people in the world who don't think that I should exist. And I feel so proud of what we've done and what we've created and this incredible family that we've built. It sounds like you haven't had a moment of... of being like, oh, what did I commit myself to? (laughs) Is that right? Oh, I like don't at all want to make it sound like I've been like a steadfast believer in my own parenting abilities at all. I would say about two weeks in, I had a really bad day with the kids where I ended up yelling. And that night I was just like, I don't, think that I can do this. I'm not good at parenting. I thought I'd be a good parent. I'm not good. Like, is it too late to send them back? And John was like, yes, asshole. It's too late. I told you how hard this was going to be. You said that you are, you could do it. We are going to do this. So, oh, there are still times when I look back on my day and I'm so embarrassed at what a terrible parent I was. I don't know why I thought I could do this. Uh, no, I don't ever want to make it sound like I didn't doubt it. Um, you had foster kids uh, growing up in your family. Um, how, how did that play into your ideas of what being a parent meant? My mom is just, she's not uh, a person who's particularly driven by emotions. Um, she's very matter of fact, and she was v- very matter of fact about parenting and being a mother as well. You know, she said she didn't feel any more of a connection to us because she gave birth to us than she would have if she'd bought us at the store. Um, So I was really raised to believe that biology 
does not make a family. Um, and I think that's a real privilege. And having this sort of constellation of other kids in my life that my parents took care of and supported in a variety of ways, it just, I think, set me up to be ready um, for when kids needed me. So you said in your email that um, you've recently become interested in having children biologically. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I guess there's a lot of stuff to unpack there at first. <laughs> um, is, are you capable of that physically? Yeah. I mean, if I went off of testosterone within three to six months, my body would become able to to carry a baby. And I started to think, you know, what would that be like? And maybe that's something that I want to do. And as part of that process, I don't ever feel like I've wanted to negate or erase the fact that I was born female. I am trans, um, sort of on the spectrum of dysphoria or discomfort with your body. Um, I'm on the like least uncomfortable side of that spectrum. So I've always felt really comfortable uh, in, you know, having a female body that's never bothered me at all. Um, so to me, I'm like, I am a man, I have a female body. Um, and, you know, I'm able to have a baby and to create life. You know, maybe that would be an experience that I would really love. Um, and, you know, I look at John too, and it's like, I want to know what his baby would look like, what it would look like, what what she would be like that we make together. I wonder if you imagine like what that would actually be like, how it would play out, like the complications of of what it would be like to be um, presenting as a man with a pregnant body. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, first and foremost, I don't believe that I would encounter any situations that would compromise my safety. Um, that's the would be my primary concern. Other than that, like I don't really care. You know what I mean? Like if I'm out in public and people are like, "Does that dude have a tumor? Like, why is he skinny but super fat in the tummy? Like, is that a pregnant man?" You know, I just don't. I don't care. <laughs> And I spent years deeply invested in other people. You know, if someone, oh man, like before I transitioned, if I would go out to the store and someone would call me ma'am, I mean, that would, it would just devastate me. It would devastate me. Sometimes I'd have to go home. Like I couldn't even have a rest of the day. You know, I spent so much time in that place and I just am, I'm just not going to go back there. You know, what other people, it's like RuPaul says, what other people think of me is none of my business. I all, I mean, I think there is also something deeply radical about being a trans person and having a baby. I don't know if you know this, but in a lot of countries, um, in a lot of European countries where they support trans people, you actually have to become sterile in order to transition. Um, it's It's actually like a bar that you have to it's a hurdle you have to jump over in order to prove to the government that you're really trans. So it is a deeply revolutionary act to say, I'm going to enter into the world of parenthood in this way. Have you taken any steps to, uh, to, to start uh, having a child biologically? No. Um, John feels deeply conflicted. Um, about it. So we're still in the process of talking it through and really figuring out, is this something we want to do? What's our timing for it? All of that. Um, yeah, he's not sure if it's something that he wants to do. So we're still we're still having conversations, I guess. And where are you at with um, the kids, with Haley and Riley? What's everyone up to and how's the family doing? Yeah. Um, I mean, July 6th, we have our adoption hearing. Um, so we're in the absolute final stages, which is really, really wonderful. That's going to be so good. Um, you know, Riley, uh, all, certainly all of the emotional issues that he had are almost completely gone. 
Um, he's just like a regular seven-year-old. You know, he has some struggles that we're not sure how much is biological, how much is because he had a rough start. Um, but, you know, we're able to support him to get those needs met. Um, Haley is, you know, she's the light of my life. You know, some girl on the playground was like, oh, is your mom dead? Is that why you have two dads? And Haley was like, no, I have two dads because I'm special. The Accidental Gay Parents was produced by Hilary Frank for her podcast, The Longest, Shortest Time. This story was the first in a five-part series about Tristan and John's journey as parents. To hear the whole series, check out your favorite podcatcher or find a link at thirdcoastfestival.org. That's it for ReSound number 241, Smash the Binary. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Maya Goldberg-Safer. Isabel Vasquez is our production assistant. Music featured on ReSound is provided by Patient Sounds, a private press record label and book publisher based in Chicago. You can find a track list for this episode along with links to songs from the Patient Sounds catalog at thirdcoastfestival.org. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. With so much to listen to and so little time, ReSound. All diamonds, no rough. <laughs>